Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, warm welcome to First Move. As always, fantastic to have you with us for another terrific Tuesday on the program and lots to get to today, including a drone duel. Moscow hit with a wave of surprise drone attacks, damaging buildings and causing injuries on the ground. Ukraine not claiming responsibility, but predicting more strikes against Russia soon. This as Russia launches its 17th day of strikes against Kyiv this month. Plus, China Charge, Beijing launching its first civilian astronaut into space. A successful rendezvous with the Chinese space station as the superpower race to the stars heats up. We'll be discussing China's space ambitions later in the show. Also, a delicious day, a key legislative test in the U.S. House Tuesday on the newly inked debt ceiling agreement. Perhaps some tense hours ahead, too, for President Biden and Speaker McCarthy as they try and shore up votes. A live report from D.C. just ahead. And in the meantime, U.S. investors back after the long weekend holiday and the reaction, as you can see, I think, to that deal, mostly positive. The Nasdaq, the outperformer, up more than 1.3 percent pre-market. Certainly a more cautious feel, I think, across Europe, though, as you can see, the German market outperforming. The FTSE pulling back after the bank holiday weekend there too. But advertising firm WPP, a winner, with shares spiking on news of an artificial intelligence deal with chipmaker NVIDIA. And they're set for a fresh record high today too as it closes in on a $1 trillion market cap just as its CEO unveils a suite of new AI-tied products over in Taipei. And China welcoming its share of international VAPs this week too. Elon Musk arriving in Beijing and meeting with the Chinese foreign minister. The Tesla and Twitter CEO saying now is not the time for a US-China economic decoupling, which has been a key Beijing talking point too. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon also set to speak at that Chinese summit tomorrow. And it may be a warm welcome for the business community, but Beijing have more cautious on the political side. The Pentagon saying China rejected a request for their respective defence ministers to meet in Singapore this week. Lots to get to today, as you can tell, as always. But we do begin today with those drone strikes in Russia, leaving at least two people injured and causing damage, as I mentioned, to buildings in Moscow. Russia blaming Ukraine for the attacks, Kiev again denying direct involvement. It follows news of those further waves of drone strikes on the Ukrainian capital once again, too. Fred Pleitgen has the details. It was a pretty tough night here for the uh, citizens of the Ukrainian capital, uh, Kiev. For several hours, we had Shahed drones flying overhead, while at the same time, Ukrainian air defenses were frantically trying to shoot them down. I'm at one of the places that sustained some pretty heavy damage. If we look over here, we can see that there's still a lot of debris laying around in front of this house. And if we pan up, you can see that the top floors 
of this uh, building have been substantially damaged. And this is also the place where the authorities here in Kiev say a 33-year-old woman was killed while she was inside her uh, apartment. Now, at the same time, the authorities here in Ukraine are saying they believe that their air defenses were actually once again very effective. They say they managed to shoot down most of the Shahed drones. And also, the hit that happened on this building here was apparently a drone that was shot down and then fragments, obviously including the warhead, hit this very building. At the same time, we do have that situation that unfolded in the early morning hours in the Russian capital of Moscow, where the first for the first time since uh, the war in Ukraine began, they were attacked, they say, by drones. They blame the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are saying that it wasn't them. However, the Russian military is saying they managed to take down all of those drones, eight in total. They say three by electronic countermeasures, essentially bringing them off course. But they also said that they had to activate their own air defense systems and use missiles to shoot down five of those drones. Fred CNN, Kiev. And to the debt ceiling debate now, and ahead of a crucial U.S. House vote on Wednesday, the first hurdle comes today. The bill must clear the Republican-controlled House Rules Committee, and one committee member isn't so happy. I'm going to be making that loud and clear to my Republican colleagues that this is not a deal that we should be taking. The whole point of the Rules Committee was to say that we were going to have a power sharing where we had a representation of the entire conference. And I'm not thrilled with this bill right now, so I'm not going into the Rules Committee with a very positive view towards this bill. Chip Roy there is just one of two Republicans on the committee who have voiced concerns about the deal. Arlette Sines is at the White House with the latest for us. Arlette. Personal opinions are allowed and expected, but is this deal also expected to pass? Because it's clearly this or default. Well, Julia, right now, one of the key challenge for both President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is getting their respective parties in line. And you have heard the conservative wing of the Republican Party and then progressives in the Democratic Party uh, voice their frustration and skepticism about this bill. Now, as you mentioned, uh, this agreement will face a key hurdle today as the House Rules Committee is set to consider the agreement. And as you noted, two Republican members on that committee have voiced their opposition. Now, it is important to note that they need at least seven members uh, of the Republican Party to vote forward on this rule in order to make it out of committee. So they cannot afford any defections uh, from GOP uh, lawmakers. But that is really one of the key tests that this agreement is facing as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is pushing towards a vote uh, tomorrow in the House. But while you have uh, conservative members of the Republican Party saying that this bill does not cut spending enough, you are all also hearing very palpable frustration from progressive Democrats who are specifically frustrated with the inclusion and toughening of a work requirement for some recipients of food stamps. Now, President Biden has said he feels very good about the prospects of the, this bill, but he has acknowledged to reporters that he doesn't know if he can get progressives on board. Behind the scenes, the White House has engaged in lobbying with Democrats, uh, with both senior staff uh, at the White House and President Biden himself calling lawmakers to try to get them on board with this proposal. But even as some progressives are not yet committing to supporting the bill, the White House did get a boost when there is a coalition, the New Democrats Coalition, which is comprised of about 100 moderate Democrats. The leadership of that group came out and said that they do endorse this agreement. So that is uh, some welcome news for the White House as they are trying to get enough support to get this over the finish line. Now, Republicans believe that they could be pushing towards 150 Republican votes, which would be more than... uh 
more than half of the Republicans in the House. So there are some contours of what this vote uh, could look like, but there are seriously there are still some very serious hurdles ahead as they're trying to get this all passed in the House and the Senate by June 5th. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? I wonder how many of them will have actually read this bill mm -hmm. in its entirety. Hmm. All at signs. Great to have you. Thank you. Okay, now to the latest superpower to join the space race. A Chinese spacecraft has successfully docked with the Tiangong space station. The name actually means heavenly palace in Chinese. And now three astronauts will stay there for around five months. The crew includes China's first civilian astronaut too, a professor of aeronautics and astronautics. Well, Ripley joins me now. Look, well, I said it today rather than making you say it. Um, they've called it a huge success. What images, <laughs> I know. And they were e friends. Excellent pronunciation, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> I did my best. Um, what images have we seen? Um, and of course, the, the changeover of the astronauts, too. Well, it's really extraordinary, and, and you can see why Chinese, you know, by by the millions, were glued to their televisions and their screens today, watching as you know these six astronauts came together on China's uh, China's space station, which is expected to be in low Earth orbit uh, for at least a decade to come, could potentially outlast the International Space Station in terms of its time in space. And so China really sending a very strong message here to the world and to their own people that uh, they are in space and they're in space uh, to stay. And of course, this is just the first step for China. They want to go to the moon. Eventually, they want to go to Mars. And what makes this mission uh, very unique, uh, you know, is that this is the first time, as you mentioned, that there's a civilian on, on board. People on Chinese social media, yes, they were, of course, uh, you know, talking about the fact that this professor at Beihang University, the prestigious aeronautics and astronautics university, uh, uh, you know, who pursued his postdoctoral studies in Canada, is going to be on board. Uh, he's going to be conducting experiments, operating the payloads. But what people were most fascinated by, Julia, is the fact that he wears glasses. Uh, and, and previously, it was, it was believed, and it was the policy in China, that the astronauts, who are all members of the People's Liberation Army up until now, uh, had to have perfect vision. And now China's saying that because their space program is growing and branching out, that they can have civilians, and even civilians who need to wear glasses, which is similar, by the way, to NASA in the U.S. And it just goes to show the rapid advancement here that now China will have a permanent manned presence in space, they're bringing on board civilians, people from different backgrounds, and even people who have to wear spectacles. Um, and, uh, you know, it certainly is going to be uh, quite something to watch this space race, Julia, as it develops. Because, you know, the U.S., of course, they, they want to go to Mars. They want to go to the moon. China wants the same. And the U.S. and China haven't been working together in space for more than 10 years mm. because the United States raised concerns and actually had China banned from the International Space Station because they were afraid that China was using shared technology and information to grow their intercontinental ballistic missile program. Uh, now you have China doing it on their own and doing it very quickly. I mean, it's really remarkable, the progress and the quick progress that China's made. Oh, I mean, there's so much in there. I love the point that particularly for children, perhaps those that do wear glasses, and obviously some will do it very elegantly, um, that it's not seen as something that they can't achieve or dream of in the future if that's what they want to do um, simply because they wear glasses. So I do love that idea. Um, but to your point about the competition and the sharpening competition, I think that other nations, the United States, the European see with China, particularly at a moment over tensions about technology, I sort of wonder whether we're seeing the path being laid or if not already being laid for um, the next sort of technological battleground, space and lower Earth orbit. 
Well, and we've talked a lot about this and about how this lower Earth orbit is really a priority of the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Remember, there was that big spy balloon fiasco where the Chinese spy balloon was operating, you know, in, in low, low altitude in the stratosphere, essentially. Now, this, the space station obviously is just above that. Uh, but having, a, having a, the ability to operate in this realm of either, you know, low Earth orbit or just below what's considered to be space in the stratosphere, uh, it is a new uh, battleground. It is a battleground militarily. It's a battleground technologically. And so focusing on, uh, you know, technology that they're going to be testing on their space station, certainly there are going to be civilian uses and also military uses as well. So for those who are concerned about China's ability to weaponize uh, space, well, guess what? China's there, and they're learning very, very quickly. Now, of course, the United States, Russia, still decades ahead of China in many uh, areas. But I have to say, Julia, uh, you know, China's ticking off the list of achievements, uh, and they're doing, it, they're doing it faster than I think a lot of experts predicted, uh, despite being essentially barred by the U.S. from this international collaboration, you know, the International Space Station, and all of the technological developments that have come out of that, uh, both civilian and, frankly, military as well. Yeah, they're going it alone. Well, that is the perfect tease for a conversation that we're going to have um, later on in the show all about this and um, just how far China is behind you and how welcome. quickly they're accelerating. <laughs> so um, thank you for that again, <laughs> Ripley. Great to have you on. Thank you. Now, not to be outdone, North Korea also planning a space launch. The government in Pyongyang says it will send its first military spy satellite into orbit in the next few days. According to officials in Japan, North Korea will be using its long-range missile technology banned by UN resolutions. Both Japan and South Korea warning Kim Jong-un not to carry out the satellite launch. And a prison cell awaits the woman behind a multi-million dollar scheme to defraud investors. Elizabeth Holmes was the public face of the health tech startup Theranos. Today, she's expected to surrender at a federal facility in Texas. In November, a judge sentenced her to more than 11 years behind bars for fraud and for conspiracy. Holmes raised nearly a billion dollars from investors by making false claims about the company's blood testing technology. CNN's Rosa Flores joins us now live from Texas. Rosa, I think many of our viewers will remember because we talked about this company and the downfall of this company. She was compared to Steve Jobs. How much of these 11 years do we expect her to serve and what more can you tell us? What I can tell you this morning is that according to the court order, she's expected to turn herself in to the facility that you see behind me before 2 p.m. local time today. Now, I don't know if she has read the inmate handbook, but all 82 pages are available online. And, and it's those rules and regulations that she'll have to live by for the next 11 years. I believe the individual is the answer to the challenges of healthcare. Elizabeth Holmes, the disgraced founder of Theranos, is set to trade in her trademark black turtlenecks for a prison jumpsuit after multiple failed appeals to keep her out of prison. Holmes, now a mother of two, is set to report to the federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas today. The minimum security women's prison is approximately 100 miles from Houston, Texas, and houses more than 600 inmates, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The right to protect the health and well-being of every person, of those we love, 
is a basic human right. Holmes was only 19 years old when she dropped out of Stanford University to pursue her startup Theranos full time. Once valued at $9 billion at its peak, Theranos attracted an impressive list of investors and retail partners with claims that it had developed technology to test for a wide range of medical conditions using just a few drops of blood. So this is the little tubes that we collect the, the samples in. We call them the nanotainer. They're about this big. Holmes appearing on magazine covers and was hailed as the next Steve Jobs. I've always believed that the purpose of building a business is to make an impact in the world. The company began to unravel after a Wall Street Journal investigation in 2015 reported that Theranos had only ever performed roughly a dozen of the hundreds of tests it offered using its proprietary technology and with questionable accuracy. Investors and retail partners backed out and in June of 2018, Holmes pleaded not guilty. Ultimately, she was indicted for fraud before being convicted last year. Her rise and fall depicted in the hit Hulu show, The Dropout. You don't understand the business. you don't understand the science. Despite her conviction, Holmes told the New York Times that she plans to work on healthcare-related inventions behind bars. Quote, I still dream about being able to contribute in that space. Now back to that handbook. It states that once Holmes turns herself in, she will get a social and medical screening, that all inmates must maintain a job, that the pay rate is between 12 and 40 cents. Now it doesn't specify if that's per hour. I'm assuming that that's per hour. It also states that all inmates are initially assigned to the food, food service area. And Julia, one other thing, it says that inmates have to wake up at six o'clock every morning and make their own beds. Julia. We shall see the next 11 years. Rosa Flores, thank you for that. Straight ahead, a warning from human rights groups in Iran will explore Tehran's crackdown, ongoing crackdown on dissent after this. Welcome back to First Move. The protests in Iran sparked by the death of Masa Amini may have been quelled, but authorities are showing little mercy to those who showed dissent. Now, human rights groups say the government has resumed executing those accused of protesting. Sama Abdelaziz joins us now on this. Sama, what more can you tell us? And do you have a sense of numbers? Very good question, Julia. What we did see in the last few months after that period last year, of course, of these massive demonstrations that rocked every single province in Iran that attracted international attention, there appeared to be a period of calm. A brutal crackdown sent many protesters back home and pressure from the international community seemed to quiet Iran's repressive response. But now with the world's attention turning away, it appears that they are once again resuming one of the most brutal practices of all, executing protesters. Take a look. Outside a jail near Tehran, families of prisoners gathered chant, do not hang them. Their pleas come as Iran resumes the execution of protesters after a months-long hiatus. The brutal practice restarted this month with the hanging of three young men accused of killing three members of the security forces during anti-government protests in November. 
the news sparked more demonstrations. But activists and human rights groups say the allegations against the trio are baseless. Majid Kazemi was forced to watch video of interrogators torturing his brother, and he was subject to at least 15 mock executions, according to Amnesty International. In an audio note obtained by the organization, he maintained his innocence. CNN cannot independently verify the clip. They kept beating me and ordering me to say this weapon is mine, he says. I told them I would say whatever they wanted, just please leave my family alone. Before his execution, the family of 36-year-old Saleh Mir Hashami, a karate coach from Esfahan, tried to draw attention to his plight. This picture of his father spread on social media. My son is innocent, the sign reads. But to no avail. Activists shared this heartbreaking video. They say Ismar Hashami's dad hugging his picture as he lay by his son's grave. Iran has not responded to CNN's request for comment. The total number of demonstrators known to have been executed since last year now stands at seven, according to CNN reporting. And more executions are likely imminent. Over a hundred protesters have been sentenced to death or are facing charges punishable by death, says this human rights activist. When authorities fear protests or right after protests, number of executions go up. The aim is to create fear in the society to prevent more protests. Do you expect that the number of executions is going to rise even more this year? It is rising already unless the international community takes a strong move against these executions, we might be facing a very large number of executions in the coming months. Rights groups say that Mohammad Robatlou, a 22-year-old protester with a mental health issue, could be one of the next victims of Iran's execution machine. Activists are ringing the alarm. They say yet another Iranian faces death just for daring to speak out. You asked me there about the numbers, Julia. The key number that activists uh, and rights groups gave us is that some 100 people or over 100 people are either facing crimes punishable by death or have already received the death penalty, although it has yet to be carried out. And I'll give you one more number, and this is important. If you compare the figures, the number of people executed in Iran from 2021 to 2022, there was more than an 80 percent increase. Yes, most of those executions were due to crimes uh, and other offenses that were not related to demonstrations. But the concern is that the Iranian government is turning to this practice, the death penalty, ever more, and that that number, more than 570 people executed last year, that number could rise even more this year. Mm. A critically important report. Salma, thank you for that. Salma Abdelaziz there. Okay, coming up after the break, an extinction-level threat. Why AI experts are now warning of risks for the survival of society. We'll hear from one industry leader after this. Welcome back to the show. Dozens of AI industry leaders, policymakers and academics are warning there's a risk that the use of artificial intelligence could lead to the annihilation of humanity. 
The statement says extinction by AI should be considered a top global threat and treated just as seriously as risks from pandemics or things like nuclear war. It's worth noting today's cutting edge chatbots don't think for themselves. In simple terms, they produce outputs and answers based on data that they've been trained on. It's about the model. And that's where Scale AI says it offers solutions. It provides software that in part helps label and refine the data sets used in this process. For example, their data can be used to teach AI in self-driving cars to spot the difference between a pedestrian and a pebble. That's very important. Now, for over seven years, Scale has been serving organizations from Fortune 500 companies to the U.S. Defense Department. And it's just launched two new platforms, Scale Donovan, used in defense for AI decision making, and Scale EGP, a generative platform for enterprises. And I'm pleased to say Alexander Wang is the CEO and he joins us now. Alexander, most of my audience heads exploded there along with mine. I tried to keep it simple. Just in simple terms, in your words, welcome and explain what you do at Scale AI. Thanks so much for having me on. Scale is the data platform accelerating the development of artificial intelligence. Like you mentioned, at the end of the day, all of these algorithms boil down to the data that they're trained on. So whether it's a self-driving car or it's ChatGPT or it's any number of capabilities that people are working on with artificial intelligence, it always comes down to data. And we're working to unlock AI for every single industry from you know the high tech players uh, like Meta, Microsoft and others, all the way to large enterprises and the US government and the Department of Defense, like you mentioned with our new platforms, Scale Donovan and Scale EGP. Okay, so you take their data, you label it, you filter it, and you ensure that whatever the inputs are into the models that are created are the best they can be to ensure the most efficient and I think smartest, can we call it that, outputs, so that these chatbots, for example, don't talk gobbledygook just based on the, um, the data that they're trained on being romance novels, for example, was, was one of them that was used. And then you got weird outputs. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think one of the things that we're finding with these AIs is that they're incredibly sensitive to the data that they're trained on. You know, it's possible to create AI that will blow your mind and be incredibly powerful, but it's also possible to create AI that just, you know, falls flat or returns gobbledygook or just doesn't perform very well. Our view is that enterprises and, and anyone using these models, they need to know how to use their own data, their own know-how, their own expertise, their own trade secrets to combine with these powerful algorithms to actually build experiences that are you know, new, refreshing, different, and powerful to provide a lot of value to their customers, provide a lot of value to their users. Um, you know, Enterprises can't use large language models or these AI completely off the shelf. They need to be customized and meet strict requirements for security and performance to actually be able to be usable in the workplace. How do you do it? Does it require human input in order to, to label and select and to identify which data is best? I guess I'm asking why you have an advantage in doing this versus anybody doing it in-house, for example, if they wanted to. Yeah, you know, we, we've been working in AI, as you mentioned, for the past seven years, all the way back to the very genesis of many of the technologies that have um, that we're seeing today. You know, we've been working with OpenAI since 2019, for example, and worked with them uh, back on GPT-2 uh, before it was uh, before it was the incredibly powerful technology today. One of the things I like to say is that it was a uh, four-year overnight success um, uh, based yes. on the work that we we did with them. You know, today we're seeing a lot of AI tourists uh, pretending to be AI natives because there's just so much hype. There's a lot of companies that are not even selling solutions, they're selling vaporware. 
And so what we can bring is a lot of our expertise in working with these systems from the very beginning and have a ton of experience bringing this technology from, you know, prototype to production and actually help release this technology to the broader public. You know, our products, they're not coming soon. Uh, They're live with customers today, everywhere from the Fortune 500 to the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, Our Donovan platform uh, is the first large language model that's going to be deployed on a U.S. government classified network. Um, With Donovan, warfighters can act in minutes instead of weeks. And we're working with customers, including the Department of Defense's Joint All-Domain Command and Control, as well as the Marine Corps University uh, School of Advanced Warfighting. And then on the enterprise side, you know, our view is that kind of, as I mentioned, enterprises can't use large language models off the shelf. And that's why we created EGP. It's a full stack solution for enterprises that is model agnostic and enables uh, enables, uh, businesses to leverage a suite of options from leading private models to open source models to test, deploy, monitor the best tech for their unique, unique business models. Okay. And, you know, we're working with customers like Coke Industries to enable generative AI for their business. Okay. I have a million questions for you. But the most important one was just how um, sort of unemotionally you were discussing some of the defense contracts and, and the importance that your data and your filtering is in in the selections that are one day going to be made. And if I tie that with the warning that we got from the industry about the risk of extinction from AI and combine it with what you just said about open AI and the difference, I think, between what we've already seen with ChatGPT2 and ChatGPT4, the sophistication is dramatically better. So is the darker side. Alexander, where's the off button here? Where's the control system? And even the defense contracts that are being um, undertaken today. Yeah, no, no, this is a this is a topic of of incredible importance. And as we saw today with the statement, I think it's, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why at scale, we're working in partnership with the White House to perform a public evaluation of these AI systems. Um, It's critical that the AI industry is doing this work in testing and evaluating these models in parallel alongside development. And progress in foundation models and progress in AI, the capabilities needs to happen alongside progress in safety and model evaluation and understanding what the risks associated with this technology are. Is so, you know, what we're today? doing is... Is that happening today, um, though, Alexander? I mean, we're asking these questions, uh, which is important, but I feel like ChatGPT has been unleashed on the broader public before we really have any controls. Let's be clear. I, I think, uh, you know, this is one of the things that we're working on. And the White House recently released a statement, I believe it was two weeks ago, um, a fact sheet describing the efforts that they're taking um, in in ensuring public evaluation and public forums in which we're understanding the importance of these models. I, You know, one thing I would say is we need to act very quickly. Um, it is an incredibly powerful technology. These are incredibly important conversations that we need to be having. Um, and so uh, we're trying to race as quickly as we can to to deliver these these test and evaluation systems, but you know, as I as we mentioned before, at scale we have over seven years of expertise in the AI industry, and so you know we've been able to utilize our deep understanding and clear way to measure the risks associated with these models to really accelerate um, you know our country's efforts in understanding you know the the safety mitigations and risks with these models. Yeah, but the scary thing is seven years, and you're prehistoric in artificial intelligence terms. I mean, you're an effective dinosaur. So we are sort of relying on you in many ways to be able to recognize um, 
the benefits, which I think people can and do see, but also the downsides. If I had to ask you and just put you on the spot what you think the best way is to regulate this, and I know it's a complex question, what is the best way to regulate it? Does it make sense to pause, Alexander? I know it's fundamental to your business, but would a pause make sense? You know, I, this, is a, this is a really important question, and it's one that we and my, I personally have spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I think as we've seen, you know, the history of AI really tells us that uh, the key to human-centric responsible AI really comes down to a solid data foundation. Mm. And for a technology that's as transformative, as far-reaching, and potentially as ubiquitous as artificial intelligence, um, I unfortunately don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach to regulation. For example, there's a number of industries that are going to need to regulate industries that are impacted by AI such as the uh, FDA for medicine and health or the Department of Transportation for uh, autonomous vehicles or the FAA for drones. And so, you know, ensuring that AI is employed for maximal benefit will require a wide participation from everywhere, from policymakers, industry, civil society organizations, um, and everyone needs to bring together, come together to sort of educate each other to ensure that AI is developed in a safe and trustworthy way for the American people. One thing is clear, though, per our previous conversation, I think it's absolutely critical that we have proper test and evaluation and and uh, understanding of the risks of these AI systems as we are developing them. So kind of as you mentioned, how we've uh, unleashed ChatGPT on the world, potentially before there have been the, the right checks and balances put in place. I think for all future deployments of powerful AI technology, we need to ensure that we have the right public safeguards and public testing to make sure that there's nothing risky or dangerous with any models that we're publishing in the future. I, I couldn't agree more with you. A, a human sensitive and centric um, AI system requires um, the right data set and to consider it. I read an article about your company in Forbes back in April and it said um, you employ sort of a, a company called Remo Tasks, which employs around 240,000 humans that are the ones that are going through all this data and, and trying to make sure that the right data set for, for you guys is provided to, to the customers. Is that, is that right, Alexander? Does it take 240,000 people to um, sort of cultivate the data sets that you're providing to customers? Because human-centric data also requires a lot of humans, if that's true. Yeah, exactly as you mentioned in terms of a human-centric and a human-sensitive approach to artificial intelligence, you know, we really believe that it requires sort of the, the collective expertise and collective knowledge of as many people in the world to really empower and enhance these models. You know, we don't believe in walled gardens and we don't believe in sort of a small group of, of uh, individuals or a small group of engineers deciding how this technology should look for you know, the entire world or the broader ecosystem. The, the use cases that we're considering, whether it's, you know, with the Department of Defense and working on, on defense use cases, or it's with large enterprises, or it's with OpenAI uh, deploying ChatGPT, you know, these are use cases that are incredibly important for, you know, the hu future of humanity writ large, not just for the future of the technology industry. And so, you know, our view is that we need to build a technology that enables the sort of collective wisdom and collective expertise of as many people as possible to bring into the data sets that fuel these models so that they sort of reflect our collective knowledge, our collective wisdom, our collective values. Yeah. I mean, the more people that's checking this, the better. But it, it, am I correct? Do, do you employ sort of hundreds of thousands of people to, to check this data? And I guess if, do you actually? I should ask you the question directly first. 
Yeah, you know, uh, I, I can't comment specifically on the, ah. the number of people. It, but, it should um, matter but we do... for defense contracts, surely, where those people are based and who's checking the data, or doesn't it? Yeah, so, so in our work with uh, in Scale Donovan, for example, one of the things that right. we do is in line with deploying, you know, the first a large language model, the first AI system to a uh, large language model to uh, classified networks, you know, we're also ensuring that the data to fuel these systems is is powered by, you know, the most brilliant experts within the United States. So we, in this case, we bring in experts in defense data and in in uh, uh, defense context to bring the data to be able to power these models. Um, Alexander, I have about a thousand more questions for you, but we're going to have to reconvene. As you said, um, this is early days for this technology. We all need to be thinking about regulation. And um, yeah, we'll reconvene, sir. Thank you for joining us on the show. Alexander Wang, CEO and co-founder of Scale AI. Great to chat to you. We're back after this. Thank you so much. Welcome back to First Move. Now, as we reported earlier in the show, the Shenzhou 16 spacecraft has successfully docked with the Chinese space station. The crew of three will spend the next five months making this their home among the stars. China saying the launch was a, quote, complete success. And it may just be a small leap for men, or men in this case, amid Beijing's broader space ambitions. Shenzhou 16 is the fifth manned mission to the Chengdong Space Station since 2021. China clearly looking to turn itself into the world leader in space. Plans for the next decade include solar-powered beam down to Earth from orbit by 2028 and a lunar research station by 2036. The question is, how feasible is all of this? Joining us now is Namrata Goswami. She's Professor of Space Policy at the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University. Professor, fantastic to have you on the show. This launch and successful docking at the Chinese space station, just one small piece of their broader space ambitions. Just put it into context for us. How intrinsic is this to national security, national rejuvenation, and the Chinese economy. Sure, thank you for having me. So this particular launch has three very critical uh, benefits for China in terms of leadership in space and national rejuvenation. One, it proves that China has the continuous capability to support human presence in low Earth orbit, which is a critical uh, capability to then support missions to the moon, as well as China's uh, ambitions to go to Mars and asteroids. So in terms of national security, this means that China is able to test capabilities on low Earth orbit like robotic arm, rendezvous and dock, uh, docking, proximity operations. But deeper than that is the very critical component of economic development. So what this means is that China has announced ambitions to access the resources on the moon, which in their estimation is going to be a $10 trillion economy annually by 2050. So to be able to support missions, uh, transportation, cargo to the low Earth orbit Tiangong station is a way to uh, showcase to the world as well as uh, test capabilities for those ambitions that they have articulated. I mean, that's quite fascinating to me. Um, the difference in explaining their ambitions between China and the United States, for example. I've never heard the U.S. government talk about this in terms of a $10 trillion 
economic opportunity by, by 2050, and that's on an annual basis. Is that rare earth minerals? Is that, is that where the economic yes. opportunity is? Yeah, so if you look, if you listen to China's main designer, Wu Wearing of Lunar Program, he identifies three critical resources that are there on the moon. One is, of course, rare earth minerals like titanium, platinum, silicon, iron ore, which in their estimation is that economy that they talk about. The second important uh, critical component is helium-3, which is the fuel that will be used for nuclear propulsion capability that will enable China to reach, for example, Mars at a much more shorter duration. And then the final resource on the moon, which is absolutely vital for that economic development is water ice that can be utilized not just for uh, rocket fuel, but also sustain human presence. And as you must have heard just uh, last week, uh, China brought forward its uh, human lunar missions to 2030 instead of 2036. So they are actually competing and scaling up their ambitions as we speak. Yeah, the timetable is shrinking for their ambitions. And we mentioned it in the introduction, 2049, which happens to be uh, the 100 anniversary, year anniversary of the, the People's Republic of China. They want to be the leader in space. Um, I guess my question that follows that is, um, is this excessive ambition or is this achievable just based on what we're seeing at this moment? Uh, this is actually not an excessive uh, ambition. Uh, if you think about it, it is uh, articulated since uh, 2000 when China established their lunar exploration program and resource extraction program. And so in the world, what is interesting is that there is this argument that Earth is finite and the resources on Earth, for example, something like ground solar is not 24 hours. So uh, in the Chinese estimation, technologies like space-based solar power that you mentioned, uh, which is 24-hour sunlight uh, from uh, space, is a critical technology if China wants to advance. And if you think about it, if you look at their lunar programs, they have articulated several missions. They have succeeded till Chang'er 5, that is the lunar sample return mission from near Earth, uh, near, uh, sorry, near side of the moon. And so uh, the next mission is going to the south pole of the moon and finally a research station. So they're actually demonstrating capability. And so the important thing for your audience is that when you think about it, it's connected to uh, the Communist Party of China's legitimacy, economic development, and also um, making sure that China has presence in some of the most critical strategic areas on the moon. So one is, of course, Lagrange Point 2, where they have their relay satellite and the South Pole. So when I studied their program and I've been doing it, looking at their grand strategy for the last 20 years, this is actually practical. Uh, the physics support it. All we need to do is now demonstrate the capability. Yeah, that was the question I was looking for earlier. The practicalities of it um, are critical. Um, satellite technology as well. I, we speak to startups. We've spoken to um, the NASA administrator about the importance of the satellite and lower Earth orbit and the importance for on the ground for communications, for logistics, for bank transactions, for defence. It's fundamental. Talk to me about this and whether you see... Um, this being perhaps the next, if not already, battleground for technology between China and the West. And how should it be handled by the West in your mind? Well, I think uh, when, you, uh, when you want to understand China's investment in strategic technologies, especially the Communist Party of China, so uh, there are three very critical technologies that they have identified as vital 
for the national rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, as well as uh, taking leadership. One is space and space technology. So for example, China has its own Baidu navigation system that enables not just civilian navigation, as well as timing and precision, which is critical for container ship traffic, where China is the leader, but also national security. So it supports missile tracking and precision navigation timing of missiles. It supports command and control, nuclear signaling. Also, what is fascinating is that satellite technology also enables uh, satellite internet, which is critical, not just for civilian uh, infrastructure, but also military. Mm. And so when you think about it from a national security perspective, uh, China has also invested in certain counter space capabilities like anti-satellite uh, weapon, kinetic, which means you directly uh, target and destroy a satellite. They showed to the world that capability in 2007, but they also have invested in non-kinetic, which does not mean you launch a satellite, uh, launch a missile and target a satellite, but you actually use spoofing, jamming, dazzling and laser. Laser is a critical capability and China has invested in that. So uh, to answer your question in short, there are three very critical strategic technologies China is investing in. Space, artificial intelligence that enables that capability. Uh, China just announced an artificial space orbital platform last year. And then finally, robotic. So basically robotic capability. And so the difference between China and the US is that, well, the United States is very much focused on exploration, human spaceflight, showcasing a capability to go back to the moon. Uh, China's missions are very robotic. They are not announcing human missions for the next few years. They want to first develop that uh, robotic capability uh, supported by AI and uh, 3D printing to demonstrate presence. Yeah. So one's about uh, sort of science, um, scientific approaches and exploration, and the other is highly strategic over the course of the next decades. Um, I'm just getting warmed up. We have to speak again. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Great to have you on the show. And wherever you are, it looks absolutely beautiful. So, um, yeah, wish I was there. Little. <laughs> Namratika Swami. Thank you, Professor of Space Policy at the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University. And welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are back in action following the long holiday weekend. And there's the picture. It is a mostly stronger start on hopes that debt ceiling agreement will pass Congress, preventing a U.S. debt default, though the challenges for investors don't stop there. We've got that critical U.S. jobs report on Friday, which will help influence the Federal Reserve's next interest rate decision. And the big stock story of the day, too, the historic rally in shares of AI chipmaker NVIDIA. Warnings today not hurting them. The company's market cap hitting $1 trillion in the first few minutes of trade. It's the first chipmaker ever to attain this historic valuation. Shares are up more than 185% so far this year. If you're an investor, congratulations to you. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.